Thank you, Brother Paul. And I just want to just take a quick time, and I want to thank you, especially all you American brothers and sisters who always come every single year and support here us on the Canadian side. Just thank you for coming and supporting us. And we're so much blessed at this feast site. We have so much musical talent. And we're blessed today to have a special music entitled There is a Cry in My Heart by Lori and Erica de la Cruz. And right after the special music, we'll have the main message for today by Pastor Agent Davis.
Thank you, ladies. We were definitely blessed by your music and by your example and the example of the whole Dela Cruz family. Really appreciate that and appreciate the lyrics to that music. What do we have if we don't have a relationship with Christ? Uh, hopefully, we're not deceived by this world and all the flashing lights and the twinkling gold. There's nothing here, as Pastor Mike said in his message. Uh, we're focused on the kingdom, and that's it. Uh, we have a tradition on the last great day, the afternoon, uh, to have you have your say. We want to hear from you, so I'll just ask my partner, Pastor Murray, to join me. And uh, we would like to hear from you. We've got some mics floating around. Um, feedback. Uh, what did you like? Where could we improve? Uh, what were your highlights? Any, any thoughts? Okay, we'll go to the next section. <laughs> uh, you must have some thoughts, Mr. Uh, or questions as well. The messages were great, but I, I just enjoyed to watch uh, young people uh, just uh, uh, creating bonds together and how they uh, really uh, set an example even to an adult. Yeah, I, I agree. So that's, the, the, I think, the highlight of the piece. You know, Can we have a pause for our young people? I commented on this. I think one of the things that you have done very well is to nurture and encourage your young people. I've been coming to Canada on and off for quite a while, and I've seen these young people grow in the church. And I've been in the church a long time and seen many young people not grow in the church. And I think you are to be commended for encouraging and bringing these people along. And I'm very happy to see more other little people that I hope that I'll see 10 years from now. Praise God. I think one in the back. I am just so grateful for the messages, especially the slant towards young people. Normally my boys come and they do all kinds of stuff, but when they hear things that they can identify with, especially Pastor Adrian, uh, you just took it home in terms of the book of Esther. They know that story. And the way you made it so real for them. They were even talking about it last night. Wow. So I'm really, really grateful for all, all of that. I, I am also grateful to participate with all of you and, and just see the relationships blossom and bloom. And I'm, I'm just so happy to be here, and I just wish everyone a wonderful feast and enjoy your rest of your week and have a safe trip back. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And, and just on that note, um, I would just like to uh, express my gratitude to Deacon Jan for his message on Youth Day and just the effort that was put into that message for our young people. I think the message itself, regardless of the content, the way it was structured, the effort that you put into it, what you were communicating was to our young people, you are very important. It's not like, oh, it's Youth Day, I'll just throw something together. Uh, you labored over that message, and that demonstrated your love for our youth, and I really thank you for that. Brother Gord. I would just like to say, in, in case that others in the our church here did not uh, hear how... Uh, grateful 
our brethren in the United Church of God were on the warmth and the wonderful reception we gave them. And I'm sure when they go back to their home churches, they will be telling their brethren and their ministers, their leaders, of just how they were treated here so warm and so kindly. And uh, I talked to the one lady in quite a, or gentleman, sorry, quite uh, a long time about it. And he said he hadn't felt that warmth even in his own church. Wow. So that's what we should be doing. Hopefully it will spread to the other churches yeah. too. So, a church so of thank God. you, thank you, brethren, for being so warm and accepting. Very good. Brother Zamashevo. Thank you. 
I should mention as well that um, when I came into the church, I didn't know how to tie a tie. And Jean-Michel taught me how to tie a tie. <laughs> so we go way back. Brother Paul. Um, one thing I may, maybe people may not realize is all the different activities, everybody's included, right? Whether it's young people, the ones in the middle, seniors, we're all included, right? And that's the big key to be part of the family, part of the community, right? Yes. And if we don't put that into practice, then I think we're messing up. So I think that was, a, to me, that was a highlight. Brilliant. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sister Corrine and then Brother Clarence. Oh, Brother Clarence, go ahead. First, man, I'm glad to say everything that uh, you can hear all evening. Uh, it's fascinating. He came here the first Genesis in the evening. And we had a service. And now today, we are having another one at the end because uh, we're told to be at the feet eight days. Now, to me, eight days is not finished until sunset. But I'm fascinated with the sermons that we've had. Uh, our ministers have been so. Uh, Enthusiastic, I told so Mr. James, the next time he has a sermon, he should show more enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he can. <laughs> but it's so good to see all the young people. And, and this is to really meet all those people that we had known in the few years that we have been in uh, international and to make more friends. And uh, it's like the song. Uh, when we go back to the community, it, uh, I mean, it says, let others see Jesus in me. Very good. Very good. I just want to say thank you for all the guest speakers who spoke at the feast and for all who played an important part in arranging the feast and doing all this work. It, it takes a lot of work to do. And also, I want to say to all of us, I've learned a lot from the guest speakers, and, and as well as all you have learned something to take back into Babylon, and hopefully that when they see us, they'll see the light and want to join in. And also, the fellowship. I've met a lot of new faces and for us to keep in touch and to keep us strong in faith and support one another. Okay, and good job, young people. Praise Thank God. Thank you. Praise God. <laughs> I see a hand here and there's one over here. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to thank the Lord for uh, being here, being a part of the fellowship here, for being able to be baptized uh, yesterday and to be able to start anew uh, to have my sins buried with the Lord and uh, to start all over again and uh, I just want to thank um, my two ministers here that they did not give up on me when I was 
mysteriously delayed upstairs changing. I just want to thank you for not giving up on me and uh, not starting without me. <laughs> and uh, just thank you for everything and uh, all the messages and all the fun things that were planned and everything. Praise God and welcome. too much. <laughs> I'm so overwhelmed. You know, this is my one piece, three piece, my third piece. And this feels like is my first piece. I see what feast is all about. I gather a lot. I learn a lot. And I want to go back and apply it to myself. And I hope that all of us will do the same thing. And I'm so overwhelmed with the young people, and I'm jealous of them. And <laughs> 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 you know, I just want our young people in Toronto to be as they are, to be motivated, and you know, have the privilege to do as they have done. And about the community, I love that part of it. You know, we are to be there for each other, to help each other, to concern about each other's well-being, and so that we can be better children for God and be stronger in His way. Praise God. Praise God. Uh, Sister Annie and then Sister June. Anybody else maybe take one or two more comments after Sister June? So Annie, then June. Okay, so we'll end with Sister June. So I would like to say thank you to the ministers and everyone else who put together all the youth activities and making this church feel like it's more than just our parents' church. Beautiful. It's very nice to come here and be able to hang out from people that are outside of your school and who have the same beliefs as your parents that you can actually sit down and talk about without being put down, honestly. Beautiful. And so thank you for all the activities. Um, Youth Day was a great sermon. Thank you for that. And just, it was an amazing year. So thank you, everyone. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, Sister June. First of all, I want to thank our Father, Most High, for inviting us all here. Uh, several months ago, in our church area, we had some um, seminars, and one of them was, de- well, was dealing with marriage. And this is one of the greatest love stories I have seen, you know, coming together as a family. And one thing they emphasized was, you know, for people to have date nights and stuff like that. And I thought about that because I'm not married. But I thought about that and I said, well, our father, he sets aside every seventh day. He wants us to get together with him. And I'm saying, oh, just looking around, this is a great love story. And this is what it's all about. So I love you guys and thank you, Father, for bringing us together. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for your feedback, brethren. We'll uh, just move into the sermon now. And uh, I will try to be as long-winded as I usually am. (laughs) No, I think I've just got about an hour, and then we'll be on our way. Um, We've clearly had a theme of community. And I hope, brethren, you have taken the time to look at the word of the day each day. Um, Those words that you see on the board are the values of the Burlington congregation. So when we 
founded the Burlington Congregation, we wanted to make sure we created a congregation that was healthy. And there's a, there's a book that has the title, Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. And what that means is any organization can have the greatest goals and the greatest strategy to achieve those goals. But if it has a sick culture, the culture will swallow the strategy and they won't accomplish anything. So what we realized was we need to create a healthy culture. And on top of that culture, we can then create a strategy. We can then set goals that we can actually achieve. And to me, it's just amazing to watch what the Burlington congregation did to, to host this feast. There were no complaints. There was just enthusiasm because of the culture. And we, I'm saying this to provoke you. There's nothing special in Burlington. We're just a group of people that God called together. I guess the only special thing was we got to start from scratch. You know, Just from scratch, we started with a vision. We said, okay, this is what we want to create together. But all of us are God's people. All of us have the Holy Spirit. We did something special here over the past eight days. And what we did was we set the culture with Pastor Murray's message right on opening night. Set the culture. Seize the feast. Make this an extraordinary feast. Don't worry about the construction. Worry about the fellowship and the faith. And that was the opening night message. And that set the tone for the whole feast. And that set the culture that enabled us to have a wonderful feast. And so what we want to say to you, brethren, is go back to your congregations and see them as communities within the broader community of the Church of God. And realize, uh, and to Brother Jean-Michel's comment earlier, every part of the body is essential. None of us have the right to look down on anybody else. None of us have the right to turn our back on anybody else. None of us have the right to see ourselves as glowworms. I like that. Can I borrow that? <laughs> you know, we're all worms. None of us are glowworms. And so, turn with me to Malachi 4, brethren. This is the last book in the Old Testament. And I don't know if anybody can confirm this, but I heard that when the Jews read this book, this part of the scripture, when they read the last verse, verse 6, they go back and they go back to verse 5. They refuse to end the way the Old Testament ends, with a curse on Israel, a curse on the earth. So look, look at uh, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So this is the dreadful day of the Lord that is ahead of us. But before this, will be sent Elijah the prophet. And this is what he's going to do. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This sounds pretty important. This sounds like something we need to get right. You know, Pastor James was talking about the hope of the last great day, that all nations, the whole earth, will know God. This is saying the opposite. 
This is saying if we don't get this right, there's nothing for the earth except a curse. That the, the earth will be smitten with a curse, meaning it'll be wiped out. So we need to get this right. The question I have is, what does it mean to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers? And, and who is this Elijah? I've heard a lot of different theories. We want to answer this because we want to get this right. In a sense, I could say, it seems to me that the fate of the earth depends on us and on, on whether or not we can get this right. So let's unpack this and try to understand what it means. And, and let's first understand what it doesn't mean. I've heard people say, the fathers in this passage are the patriarchs. That, that we need to turn our hearts toward the patriarchs, ancient Israel. And, and that's what we need to get right. The problem with that is, they're dead. Very hard to turn a dead person's heart. So, so we could turn our hearts to them, but they can't turn our hearts to us. So I think we can rule that out. I've heard people say, that we are the children of light and we must turn our hearts to the Father. And then the Father must turn his heart toward the children of light. Problem with that interpretation, brethren, is the original language. If we look at Hebrew, the word for father is actually fathers. It is plural. It's av. And it's plural. So this is talking about fathers, plural, not God the Father. So it can't be that. So let's, what, let, what is it? Let's go through this. And in fact, if you look at Luke 1.17, you don't have to turn there, but it's, it quotes the same passage in Greek. And in Greek, in the original language, it's plural. So it's not, it's not the Father. Now, let's go to the beginning of Malachi to get the context. Malachi 1. This is a book of an intense dispute between God's messenger, Malachi, and the Jews, the post-exilic Jews. So Pastor Murray spoke about Haggai, how they had left Persia, went to Jerusalem, and they built the foundation and they were so happy, but then they neglected it. So they needed to be encouraged to rebuild. And then Nehemiah came along, got them to build the wall. Ezra had them build the temple. But then by the time Malachi came, a few years later, they had fallen down again. And they were neglecting the worship of God. And so Malachi comes on the scene and he's basically having an argument with Israel. This is the context. So Malachi 1 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, wherein have you loved us? So the Jews at this time are in distress. Think of famine in the land. Very, they're having great difficulty. And God is saying, I love you. And they're saying, doesn't look like you love us very much to us. Here's God's answer. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? That's the answer. So we're suffering. We don't see how you love us. And God's answer was, let me remind you, Esau and Jacob were twins. That's the answer. 
What's that mean? It says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. I entered into a covenant with Jacob, not with Esau. I am the God who keeps covenant. And I chose Jacob. And I covenanted with Jacob. That's all you need to know. I will never, ever, ever break my covenant. I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Some would say uh, to love less. Others would say despise. God despises Esau. I love Jacob, but I despise Esau. And I have laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. That's what God did. God saw to it personally that Esau was destroyed, but he loves Jacob. Verse 4. Whereas Edom, or Esau, says, we are impoverished. So we're, we're impoverished here. But, this is Esau speaking, we will return and we will build the desolate places. So we'll rebuild. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will personally see to it that anything they build will be destroyed. That's God's answer. They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. So no matter how brilliant Esau is, no matter how capable the Edomites are, whatever they build, God will personally see to it that it's destroyed and that they will become a byword that people will look at and say, oh yeah, they're the people that the Lord has indignation against. Verse 5. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. The whole world will come to know the Lord, but they're going to come to know the Lord from the border of Israel. And that's the purpose of Israel. And that's the covenant that God has with Israel. Now we get into the argument. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where's my honor? So there's a problem in Israel. And God is a father to Israel, but there's no honor here. And, and Malachi is pulling them up and saying, what's going on here? God says, you know, you look at a family and a son honors his father. I'm a father, where's my honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is context for where we're heading. We're heading to Malachi 4, verse 5 where we're gonna, we have to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of their fathers to the children. And God is saying, this is what a son does. He honors his father, but where is my honor? And who is he speaking to? Oh, priests, you priests that despise my name. So there's some problem here where God is not being honored as a father and God points to the priests. You priests, you're the problem. You despise my name. And you say, how have we despised your name? We don't see a problem. Everything seems fine to us. So this is a, an argument going back and forth. And Malachi is saying, you priests, 
you, you're despising God. And the priest said, what are you talking about? We've got on our robes. We're, we're doing our thing. This is what I'm talking about. You offer, verse 7, polluted bread upon my altar. And then you say, wherein have we polluted you? Well, in that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. So the offering, the altar, you despise it. You, you disesteem it. You, you disesteem it. That's how you are despising me. Verse 8. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, isn't that evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, isn't that evil? Try that with your governor. So at this time, Israel didn't have a king. They were under Persian domination, but they had a governor. And he's saying, you try that with your governor and see how far that gets you. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This has been by your means. Will he regard your persons? Is God a respecter of persons, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there among you that would shut the doors for nothing? Neither do you kindle a fire on my altar for nothing. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. So the priests are going through ritual. They're offering blind and lame and sick, but they're going through the ritual. But the content is poor. The content shows they despise God. And he's saying, I will not accept an offering. Why? Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. This is what we're talking about, the last great day. Right now, only Judah, at this time, only Judah knows the God of Israel. But the intention is the whole world will know the God of Israel. That righteousness will cover the earth as water covers the sea. And so God says, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. I'm depending on you, Israel, to get this relationship with me right so that the whole world can know about me from the borders of Israel. But you're not getting it right. You're not honoring me as a father. You're not, on, you're not fearing me as a master. You're not honoring me with your offerings. How is the whole world going to know God if you, the covenant community, don't know me? The whole reason you're, I'm in covenant with you is so that the whole world can know me. That's why we're in covenant together. Esau and Jacob were brothers. And I saw to it personally that anything Esau did was destroyed. But you're still standing. You might be complaining. Things might not be going well for you. But you're still standing. Why? Because I'm in covenant with you. If I wasn't in covenant with you, you'd be destroyed. The reason you're still standing is so that the whole world can know that I am the God of Israel who created the whole universe. And you're, you're despising me. So how's this going to work? My name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. So everywhere a pure offering is going to be offered, they're going to learn that from you, and you're offering me the sick, the lame, and the blind. How's this going to work? 
For my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Lord of hosts. But you have profaned my name, in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Verse 13, you said also, Behold what a weariness it is, it, it is, and you have snuffed at it, says the Lord of hosts. So it's, it's a burden to bring offerings to God. And so they've snuffed at it. And you brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. So I'm going to look at my flock, and I'm going to take out what's damaged anyway, and I'll offer that to God, rather than taking out the best and offering that. And, and this is how you brought an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male, and vows a sacrifice unto the Lord, a corrupt thing. And sacrifices unto the Lord, a corrupt thing. So we see here the curse when we're in covenant relationship and you're not being faithful. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful, or will be dreadful, among the heathen, or basically the non-Israelites, the people who do not know God. And now, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, O you priests, this commandment is for you. So now we're coming to correction. So first we have the problem. God is not being honored. And God points to the priests as the problem. Now we have correction. And the first place of correction is the priests. This commandment is for you. And it's interesting. So first there's problems with the offerings. The people are bringing the poor offerings. And if you look at Leviticus, the focus of Leviticus for the first five chapters is the offerings and the responsibility of the people to bring the offerings. And then the next two chapters, the focus is the priests and the responsibility of the priests to bring the offerings. And Malachi follows this same structure. There's a problem with the offerings and then the focus is on the priests. But here we see now, you and now, you, and now, O you priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name. That's the role of the priests, says the Lord of hosts. If you don't do this, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. So we're seeing this language now of a covenant and, and faithlessness, breaking the covenant, and God cursing the people for breaking the covenant. And we know that we're also seeing that it's these people that are intended to bless the whole world with the knowledge of the God of Israel. But they themselves are not getting the relationship right. So God says he will curse them. Behold, this is to the priests. He's, he's now focusing on the priests. I will corrupt your seed, and I will spread dung upon your faces. Pretty graphic. Even the dung of your solemn feasts. So the priests are actually leading the people in the observance of the feasts. And God, God says, I will take the dung and spread it on your faces. I'm not impressed. I don't like your feasts. They mean nothing to me. And one shall take you away with it. And you shall know verse 4, that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant, again we're coming into covenant language, my covenant might be with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So what does this mean? So we know he had a covenant with Moses, 
But now he's telling the priests, I want to have my covenant with Levi. Who's Levi? There's different theories. Got some nut jobs out there claiming that they're Levi. Or wanting to put modern personalities in here. But who's Levi? Verse 5. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me. So there's a covenant with Levi of life and peace. And it was given to him because he feared God. Unlike these priests. These priests don't fear God. But Levi did. And he was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth. And iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. What is this? What is this talking about? And who is Levi? Let's go to Exodus to answer this, brethren. So first of all, we see in Malachi that all of this is past tense. So Malachi comes on the scene and he speaks of Levi in the past. He doesn't say Levi to come. So from the point of Malachi, we don't look forward. We have to look backward to find Levi, because it's all in the past. So let's go to Exodus. Exodus 32. We'll just break into the story here. I'm sure you'll recognize where we are. Exodus 32, verse 24. And I said unto them, Whosoever has any gold, this is Aaron speaking, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and then I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Imagine that. Put the gold in the fire, and this calf came out. The golden calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked... For Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. So there's some sort of depravity going on now to worship this calf, the people of Israel doing this. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. A son honors his father. Levi was a man of righteousness, and his sons obeyed him. And so when Moses gave the command and saw the corruption and said, Who's on the Lord's side? All the sons of Levi gathered themselves to Moses. And he said unto them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out, gate to gate throughout the whole camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. This was a curse on the covenant people for engaging in the behavior of the people of the land. So Levi came on the Lord's side, joined forces with Moses, his sons came with him, and they went through the camp, and they slayed Israel. Verse 28, And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell on the people that day about 3,000 men. So you just see that where the power of this father was such that all the children were faithful. And when it came time to choose between sin and righteousness, the family of Levi gathered together, joined forces with Moses, 
and stamped out the evil in Israel. That's the kind of father that Levi was. And that's how the children responded to the command. Now look at verse 29 where we see the covenant with Levi. For Moses had said, verse 29, Consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. So here's the blessing of Levi. Let's look at this again, our counterpart to this in Numbers 3. Turn to Numbers 3. Numbers 3 and verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that opened the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine. In other words, the firstborn belong to God. So every family, whoever the firstborn child is, consecrate that child and give it to God. And God is saying, I'll make a deal with you. I want Levi. So you can keep your firstborn. I'm taking Levi. The Levites are mine. I've taken the Levites from among the children of Israel. Verse 13. Because all the firstborn are mine, for on the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel. So that day when he went through and slew all the firstborn in Egypt, the the firstborn in Israel were hallowed unto God, both man and beast. Mine shall they be, I am the Lord. Verse 44. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn. So instead of all the firstborn, I'll have the Levites among the children of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. And the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. So God has entered into a covenant with Levi because of his righteousness. And rather than the firstborn, he will take the Levites. Okay, so that's the covenant of Levi. Now, before we continue in Malachi, let's just get a bit more context as to what was going on in Judah at this time. And let's pick this up in Ezra. So Malachi comes after Ezra and Nehemiah. I believe it's about 20 years or so afterward. Ezra 9 and verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, look, look what's happened. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, the very people who joined with Moses to stamp out corruption out of Israel, the Levites and the priests have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And this is, where, this is, how, this is how the covenant began, with Levi separating themselves from this type of behavior Now they're joining in with the people of Israel. Verse 2, For they have taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed they have mingled with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. And and I know um, some time past or some churches teach that this is talking about interracial marriage. And that's nonsense. It's not talking about interracial marriage. It's talking about interfaith marriage. The holy people were not to mix themselves with the pagans. 
and now this is what they're doing. And it's not to say that we promote interracial marriage. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult. When you start crossing races and crossing cultures, you're putting a burden on yourself. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It doesn't mean you can't have a happy mar marriage. It means it's more difficult. It's much easier if you marriage someone, marry someone of your same faith, as, Pastor, as Deacon Jan was mentioning to our young people, similar culture, similar values. The more you have similar, the less hurdles you're going to have in marriage. But shame on us if we see an interracial couple, and I've heard this, brethren, and we approach them and say, how can you be living in such sin? This is, nons this is nonsensical. It's offensive. And it's unbiblical. There's nothing in the Bible that supports that. The Bible is speaking here of interfaith marriages. For they have taken, verse 2, of their daughters for themselves and so that they have mingled the holy seed with the people of the land. Verse 3. Ezra, when I heard this thing, I tore my clothes and my mantle, and I plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard. Now, Ezra's a really nice guy, because when Nehemiah comes along, he plucks out their hair. <laughs> At least Ezra's plucking out his own hair. And I sat down astonished. And they were assembled unto me, everyone that trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, and having torn my clothes and my mantle, I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face, as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace has been showed to us from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape. And there's always a remnant because God keeps covenant. And even today in 2014, there's a remnant. There's always a remnant because God keeps covenant. There's always a remnant of people who tremble at God's word. But within Israel, physical and spiritual, there are always people who take God for granted. There are always people who turn their back on God. There are always people who compromise. There are always compromisers who get into influential positions. But there's always a faithful remnant. Always. Because God keeps covenant. You've left us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in this holy place, in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, and yet our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. And this is what the Malachi is telling the people that God does not break covenant, but has extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house for our God and to repair the desolations thereof and give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by the servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you go in to possess, it's an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands. 
with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Verse 12. Now, therefore, because of the filthiness of the land, not because of their race. I don't see anything in here. You, you show me if you see race. Got nothing to do with race. Because of the filthiness in the land, now, therefore, do not give your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children. So this is very, very clear instruction. Would everybody agree this is very clear instruction? Go into the land. The people are very, very filthy. Don't get mixed up in their filth. Don't give your children to their sons and don't take their daughters to your sons. Have nothing to do with them. Pretty clear. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 1. Actually, verse 3. We'll drop down to verse 3. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives, such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. This thing was such a serious matter that when Ezra showed up, he had to exercise his authority to separate these marriages, to, 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 to basically get these men to divorce these women and their children and become a holy people again. And verse 5 says they swore. So arose Ezra, made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they would do according to this word, and they swore. Now go to Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. We'll come back to Malachi in just a moment. Nehemiah 13. So remember Ezra went first, and he was all about setting up the altar and true wor- restoring true worship. And then a few years pass, Word comes to Nehemiah, and he hears that the wall has not been rebuilt. And he, they're all comfortable with the fact that the wall hasn't been rebuilt. He goes into depression, that they've neglected building the wall. So now he comes to Judah, or to Jerusalem. And now he, this is his, this is his uh, observation. This is after Ezra. They swore they wouldn't mix with the people anymore. Verse 10 of Nehemiah 13. And I perceive that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the offerings were taken, but they were not being given to the Levites. And we're going to see that it happens again in Malachi. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. So instead of, as uh, Pastor Mike talked about, this guy, uh, I forget his name, Richard Greer or Richard Green, the pastor that you were talking about? Giesler, Richard Giesler. uh, You know, full-time devoting himself to understanding the Word of God. That's what we need. But we don't have that. But that's the way the system was set up, so that the Levites could devote themselves to the worship service and and giving the people the the Word of God. But here they're moonlighting. So now they're having to look after the field. And any of you who farm or do have a garden, you know how much work that is. So they're not having time to dig into the Word of God. Instead, they're looking after fields, which they were not to do. So Nehemiah says, Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought, that's the Levites, Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasuries. Drop down to verse 23. In those days also I saw Jews that had married the wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, 
and didn't they just swear that they wouldn't do this thing? Now Nehemiah comes back and they're back at it, marrying the foreign woman. And their children spoke half in the speech of Ashdod and they could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. Now language matters. Language shapes our thinking. There are concepts that are available in one language that are not available in another language. So there are concepts to do with the God of Israel that are available in Hebrew that are not available in these pagan languages. And the children are growing up and they cannot speak Hebrew. Instead, they're speaking pagan languages. That means they're not learning of the God of Israel. And we're going to see in Malachi that God is seeking a godly seed. God wants children who have children who have children and all of them know God. Verse 25, And I contended with them and cursed them. You know, sometimes the leaders of God are not popular. Sometimes the leaders of God don't say smooth things. Sometimes the leaders of God don't say what you want to hear. Nehemiah was one of these leaders. He came and he wasn't popular. I contended with them and I cursed them and I smote certain of them and I plucked off their hair. As I said, you know, Ezra plucked out his own hair. <laughs> Nehemiah went in and he plucked out their hair. And I made them swear by God saying, this thing is so grievous. You shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves. Didn't Solomon, the king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among na many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. And this is the whole point. When, when Israel mixes with pagans, they mix with the pagan religion. Even King Solomon was seduced by them. Even King Solomon. And you think you're better than King Solomon? You think you can do this thing? And it's not going to seduce you? Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? This is the great sin, marrying strange wives. Verse 29 Verse 28, And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So there is a covenant that God has with the Levites so that he can have a holy people, so that the holy people can educate the whole world on the God of Israel. If you defile the covenant with the Levites, you defile the holy people. And if you defile the holy people, what, what hope does the world have? The world has to learn about the God of Israel from the holy community. And the holy community needs to learn through the covenant that God has with the Levites. So with this as context, let's come back now to Malachi 2. Malachi 2 and verse 7. 
So he has this covenant with Levi, and they've corrupted the covenant. And God says in verse 7, For the priest's lips, the Levite's lips, should keep knowledge. They shouldn't be keeping fields. They should be keeping knowledge. And the people should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, Levites, have departed out of the way. You have caused many, not a few, you've caused many to stumble at the law. You've broken the covenant with Levi, and now the people are stumbling at the law. These are God's holy people, and they're doing things that they ought not do. But there's nobody there to guide them. There's nobody there to give them the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Okay. Let me pause here uh, before we go on. It's afternoon. We've had lunch. We're kind of coming down to the close. But what I'd like to do is just take a couple of minutes with a, with a few neighbors. What have you heard so far? So just share with each other what have you heard so far. Just take a few moments.
Okay, brethren, let me, let me continue now. And so Malachi has this dispute, as, as Nehemiah did before him, as Ezra did before him. He has this dispute with the covenant community. And he's reminding them how great a God they serve and that the whole world is depending on the relationship that they have with the God of Israel. Now that relationship depends on the covenant that the Levites have. So, so God has this Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham, that says, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He then exercises a covenant with Moses to say, I'm going to make you a nation. And that nation, the whole world will come to know me through that nation. Then he exercises a covenant with Levi to say, these people will become a holy nation because of the covenant I have with you. You will be my priests to this nation, and they will be the priests to the whole world, and that's how the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. And now we come to this state where they, they came back to Jerusalem all enthusiastic, and they just keep fo- dropping the ball. And now as the Old Testament ends, they've dropped the ball again, and Malachi is contending with them. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, Malachi says, Don't we all have one father? God loves Israel. God loves Jacob. Are we not all sons of Jacob? Has not one God created us? So if we're, we're the covenant community, that's what he's saying. Aren't we all the covenant community? Well, if that's true, why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? We're the covenant community, and we are dealing treacherously with each other. Why is that? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. So we're not keeping in the covenant of our fathers, and because we're not keeping that covenant, we are, we are treacherous with each other. That covenant, we, uh, Ezra referred to it, it's actually in Deuteronomy 7, and it basically says in Deuteron- Deuteronomy 7, when you go into the land, make sure you do not mix with the people. Do not marry the foreign people, because they will seduce you away from me. That's in Deuteronomy 7, and that's the covenant that he made. He actually says, why don't we just quickly turn there, Deuteronomy 7. Hold your place in Malachi 2, Deuteronomy 7. (coughs) Verse 1, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it, and cast out many nations before you, and he mentions the nations, seven specific nations, Verse 2, when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. So these are people that God, and Pastor Mike spoke about this this morning, God wants them utterly destroyed. You shall make no covenant with them. And we're seeing here a sort of context from Malachi 4 and verse 5 and 6 where he says, If I can't have a holy people where the sons and the fathers, their hearts are turned to each other and they're a holy separate people, if instead they're going to mix, I'm going to destroy them. Here he says, utterly destroy them. And if the covenant people become faithless, God is saying he'll utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them. Neither shall you make marriages with them. Your daughter shall you not give to his son, nor his daughter shall you take for your son. And he goes on. And he says here, verse 6, For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Or we could say before all people that are upon the face of the earth. This is the meaning of the last great day. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he has sworn unto your fathers. Has the Lord brought you up out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh the king? Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is the God who keeps covenant. Let's go back to Malachi 2. Malachi 2, we read in verse 10 that we're dealing treacherously in the, in the covenant community. We're really hurting each other, dealing treacherously with each other because we've broken the covenant. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. So this is the fundamental problem. So first, the, the covenant is broken with Levi. And when that, bro- when that covenant is broken, the people are not receiving the law. When the people are not receiving the law, they cast off restraint. And they break the covenant. And now they're marrying foreign wives. No doubt these women are beautiful. I, I, don't, I don't doubt it. No doubt they're, they're the, younger, the younger model. Okay? Sister Lloyd, Brother Lloyd, imagine Brother Lloyd now, 47 years, married to his lovely wife, Gail. 47 years. Now, Gail, I don't have to ask you, in those 47 years, did you have to make any sacrifices? Many. Many. That's the nature of marriage, but there's a covenant there. And Brother Lloyd can be confident that his wife will not break covenant. But if we were at this time, Sister Gail could not be confident in Lloyd. Because there's all these beautiful women walking around, half naked, younger models. And so he breaks covenant with Gail after 47 years and starts to marry the foreign women. That's the treachery that was in Judah. The Lord will cut off, verse 12, the man that does this. The master and the scholar. In other words, I don't care who you are or who you think you are. Nobody gets away with this. Out of the tabernacle of Jacob, cut them off completely. And him that offers an offering unto the Lord of hosts. So, so playing church, coming and, and giving the offering, and you're the master, you're the scholar, you're always oh, a big offering. God is saying, I don't care. If you're dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth, I will cut you off. I will take you out of the tabernacle of Jacob. Verse 13. And this you have done, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. So they're really trying to implore God, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore, or receives it with goodwill at your hand. So there's no, it's not making any difference. They're making these offerings, they're crying, God is not answering. Yet you say, why? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. So we know that Brother Lloyd wouldn't do this, but think of that. 
where you have men who have wives 25, 50 years, the wife of their youth. They were 20, 25 when they married. I, my, my wife and I are now coming up to 25 years. We met 25 years this feast, 23 years married. She's made a lot of sacrifices. There needs to be a covenant. There needs to be a foundation that we can count on as a community. If we can't get this fundamental covenant right, how can we keep any covenant? How do we have the trustworthy character that any covenant, is, is uh, any word we say? The people said, we swear. We swear we will not marry foreign women. And they went after the foreign women. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. You know, today a lot of women can, can make it on their own. Man dumps them. It's painful, but you see them in the gym working out. You know, and they devote themselves to their career and they get on with it. Here in ancient Israel, when a man dumps a wife like this after 47 years, she's impoverished. It's treacherous behavior, breaking covenant. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. You've made a covenant. You know, uh, I, spoke, I spoke to you yesterday about John King and his model of community, uh, tribes, and that only at level four do communities actually become productive. If we're at levels one, two, or three, we're, at, we're actually declining. Only at level four and five are we productive. The other thing that he said was when we think of fundamental relationships, we think of marriage. That that's the fundamental relationship. He says uh, dyads. We think of two. What he said is two is the most unstable relationship in any community. And we certainly see that today where Deacon Jan said one out of two marriages ends in divorce. Two is unstable. That there's, there's usually competition between two. He says no engineer in the world will build any structure on two legs. No one. It's an engineering disaster. He says three is the fundamental structure of stability. If you want stability, three is the fundamental structure. So as he was saying this, I'm thinking he's talking against marriage. But then I realized God, he says here, he's the witness. God has to be in the marriage. That if, if Jesus Christ is not in your marriage, you have an unstable marriage that's destined for divorce. If Jesus Christ is there, then there's a, a governor over how we treat each other. There's structure in how we treat each other. You know, uh, Pastor Murray and I are two pastors serving in Burlington. That's disaster. That's unstable. Except for the fact that Jesus Christ is between us. We have never had a harsh word. We have never had a harsh word with each other. Because Jesus Christ is there. And brethren, I have heard and seen and experienced harsh words between brethren. Because Jesus Christ is not there. If we see Jesus Christ in each other, there'll be a limitation on what we can say and what we can do to each other. You know, we had a dog for 14 years. She died this year. 
But when we had her as a puppy, we had to take her to training. And part of the training is something they call bite inhibition. The dogs bite by nature. That's what they do. So you have to train them to inhibit that instinct to bite. And once she went through that training, she would never bite anybody. Anyone could come to our home. We never had to worry because she was now trained to inhibit that instinct. How embarrassing, brethren, if a dog has more control than us as Christians. Are we free to say and do whatever we want to each other? We're not. And the only way we can have control over ourselves is if we realize when we're two people talking, two brethren talking, wherever two or three are gathered, Christ is there in the midst of us. And we must respect Christ. So here Christ is saying, I'm in the middle of your marriage, and she's the wife of your covenant. Verse 15. So again, we're coming to Malachi 4.5, but this is the context. If we don't have the context, then deceivers can make that scripture mean whatever they want it to mean. When we read it in context, it has to mean what it means. Verse 15. And did not he make one? So Jan talked about one plus one equals one. Yet had he the residue of the spirit. And why one? This is why, brethren, that he might seek a godly seed. And a number of comments were made about how wonderful the young people are that, that are here. That's what God wants. He wants a godly seed. Generation after generation after generation, the whole world over. The church should not be made up of first-generation Christians. It should be an exception when we see a first-generation Christian. You mean you just came in? Well, you know, my grandfather was in the faith, and my great-grandfather before him. That's the way it should be. That he might seek a godly seed. This is the context, brethren, for Malachi 4, verse 5. God wants a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Let me see if I can move through this a bit more quickly. Let's go to chapter 3. Here's a commentary speaking about the witness against foreign marriages. Why is it that God requires a marriage to be in good repair before he will listen to a husband's prayer? See, see 1 Peter 3, chapter, verse 7, 1 Peter 3, 7. Malachi reveals the answer. Marriage is not just a contract, a two-way relationship between a husband and wife, but a covenant, a three-way relationship of responsibilities and privileges, which involves God as a witness to whom the couple is permanently accountable. So God is involved in this covenant. And as we learn marriage, as I learn to be faithful to my wife and, and she's faithful to me, we learn what it is to covenant. So that when we have a covenant with God, we understand now what it is to be faithful in a covenant. So marriage is the fundamental building block to learning covenant and covenant keeping and faithfulness in covenant. Verse 16 says, Therefore take heed to your spirit that none deal treacherously. So the whole community is dealing treacherously with each other because they're breaking the covenant of marriage and they're not understanding faithfulness to covenant. Chapter 3. Verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. Let's now drop down to verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And again, we need to understand this in context. The context is the people are being faithless. They're breaking covenants. Because of that, they're not tithing. They're not offering. Because of that, the Levites are not able to teach them. Because of that, they're breaking their marriages. They're breaking the law. So it's a vicious cycle. And God says it starts with the offerings. Get the offerings right. Get the covenant with Levi right. Get the instruction right. And then the community will be right. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. Why, why meat in my house? To feed the priests. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if you do this, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. This is people in famine. This is people in distress. They're crying over the offerings. They're, They're wailing, God doesn't love us anymore. And he's saying, prove me. Just do it right and see the blessing that I'll give to you. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so no longer will your fields be devoured. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12. And all nations shall call you blessed. That's the point. I want all nations looking to you as the leadership nation, the nation of kings and priests. All nations shall call you blessed, and you shall be a delightsome land, says the Lord of hosts. But your words have been stout against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it's vain to serve God, and what profit is it to keep his ordinances, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the proud happy, and they that work wickedness are set up. They that tempt God are delivered. And then it says, they that feared the Lord spoke often to one another. There's there's always a faithful remnant. There's always a faithful remnant. And in this time, 2014, We want to be that faithful remnant. But the path to faithfulness is understanding the covenant. And the fundamental covenant is the covenant of marriage. And that's what Malachi is teaching us. And they shall be mine, he says in verse 17. Now let's quickly come to chapter 4 and bring this home. Chapter 4 and verse 1. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. That day is coming. And all the proud, in Israel, out of Israel, it doesn't matter. All the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day comes to burn them up, says the Lord. And it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But you, covenant community that fear my name, shall shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, 
for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. In other words, make sure the Levites, the covenant with Levi, you're faithful to that so that we can have the law from their mouth. Remember the law of my Moses, the, the, the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So I think clearly so far we've seen the issue in Malachi is physical family. The covenant community is being treacherous. The men are being treacherous to their wives and they're marrying strange women. And the children are growing up not speaking the language and not knowing the God of Israel. And God is saying, you've got to get this right. Now, to help you get it right, I'm going to send you Elijah. And, when, and Elijah will help you get it right, and then I will come. And you will be jewels before me, as long as you listen to Elijah. So who's this Elijah? We know the original Elijah turned them away from false religion. Let's look at who Elijah is in Matthew 17. The original Elijah says here in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, we won't go there, go to Matthew 17, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've forsaken the covenant. And that's what Elijah did, is turn them back to the covenant. Matthew 17, where Jesus speaks of Elijah, after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up to a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured right in front of them, and his face shone as the sun, and his raiment as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Elijah was there. So they saw Moses. He said, remember the law of Moses, and I'm going to send you Elijah. And now the disciples are here, and they see Moses, and they see Elijah. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it's good that we were here. If you will, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus. So what's their response? Verse 9. They came down from the mountain, and Jesus charged them and said, Tell the vision to no one. Don't tell anybody. Until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So this is confusing to them. Here is Elijah. They've just come down from the mountain, and Christ tells them, don't tell anybody that you saw Elijah until I'm risen from the dead. They're thinking, well, that's too late. They need to know about Elijah now. If we wait until you're resurrected, they're going to miss out because the prophecy is that Elijah will come and give them a chance to repent. And his disciples asked them, saying, well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? If we can't tell anybody that he came, why did the scribes say that he must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come 
and restore all things. Point them back to the covenant. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. He's come already. So the Old Testament ends with a promise of Elijah. The New Testament begins with with Elijah coming and fulfilling that promise. He's come already. But they have done to them, done to him whatever they wanted. Likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer from them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah. God promised to send Elijah. He fulfilled the promise. And when Elijah came, he turned them back to true religion and reminded them of the covenant. In fact, the whole reason he was beheaded was because Herod wanted to break the covenant with his wife and marry somebody else. And John the Baptist said, it's not lawful for you to marry your, I think it was his brother's sister. It's not lawful. It's against the law. And therefore he was beheaded because he was pointing them back to covenant faithfulness. So brethren, I was just going to quote Ephesians 5 that says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Wives, see to it that you reverence your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We know all of these scriptures. Let's go to Matthew 5. Let's conclude in Matthew 5. While you're there, I'll just read um, Romans 1, verse 31. Speaking of people in the end time, being without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection. That's the society we live in. Covenant breakers without natural affection. So God is saying he needs a people that will not deal treacherously with each other the way Israel did. The whole world depends on the covenant community. The fundamental covenant that we have is marriage. That's the covenant. And all of us, whether we're married or not, we all come out of families. We all have families. And society depends on the stability of families. And those families depend on the covenant. So all of us have to, first of all, be focused on building strong families. All of us, married or not. If you're not married, help those who are married. If you're not married, don't try to seduce someone who is. Okay? It's not a good idea. We want to honor marriage. When we get that covenant right, then we will understand the covenant that we are in, that God is in with us. God says to to Jacob, you would understand if you understood the covenant. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? And yet I love Jacob. And look at the behavior of Jacob. And yet I still love Jacob. Why? Because I'm in covenant with Jacob. We have to understand that God is a covenant keeper. And so we have to build these families, build these societies where we do not deal treacherously with each other. If, we, if God doesn't have healthy covenant communities, the whole world is cursed. So it depends upon us. Matthew 5, verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So brethren, as we leave this feast site, my request is let us build covenant communities. Let us understand that in every dyad, in every relationship of two, Jesus Christ is in the midst. And the fundamental relationship of two that we have as physical beings is marriage. So let's understand that that is a covenant that helps us understand the covenant that God has with Israel and the covenant that he has with Levi, the covenant that he has with Abraham. It's all about the covenant. Let's go back. Let's practice these values. Let's practice being kind to each other. Let's practice being, being truthful with each other, hospitable with each other. Let's not be treacherous with each other. So let's leave this feast, brethren, and let's build faithful covenant communities. Thank you, Pastor Agent, for this wonderful message for the last great day. And I do have a first complaint. <laughs> Before we go home, I do have a first complaint. It's very difficult to be a worship leader on the last great day, and especially when you have to sing this song on page 234. So please stand. Let's have this closing hymn on page 234. God be with you.
home like that, right? We need something more lively to finish this afternoon service. Please turn your hymnal to page 265. Page 265, revive us again. After which I'll ask Pastor Mike James for the closing prayer. 265. If you still have voice at the end of this song, it's means you haven't enjoyed the feast to its full extent. 265. great day, Father, and we want you to be with any everyone going home tonight, tomorrow, Father, whenever they're departing, please be with them, help them safely return home, help them remember what they learned here, Father, the spirit that was here, the sense of family that was here, Father, let us not forget that, let us keep that every day, help us use that in looking at that vision that we have out there, Father, of your kingdom and getting to that kingdom. Help us think about continuing to stay in covenant with you within our families, within our marriages, Father, what that's all about. And please, within a family, Father, you're able to open up. You're able to disclose things that you can't 
to strangers, to the outside world. Allow us to use each other, Father, for the problems, the issues, the concerns, the difficulties that we sometimes hide and don't let others know about within our church family. We've got to open up to each other. We've got to become transparent to each other. And there we can find relief. There we can find solace where you are, Father, amongst us. We ask this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor James. I just have a card. Please take your seats. We don't have any announcements for the last service. But all the family that were able to touch their hearts, write contributions through the food or just the donations. And I just want to read the card what it says. To the Congregation of the Church of God International, we would like to thank for you, for your warm and kindness to our family. We are truly blessed and humble. We ask that you continually keep us in your prayer. And special thanks, thank you to Pastor Agin Davis, Pastor Mori Palmatier, and Pastor Mike James. From, from the Longmore family, Andrew, Natasha, Leah, and Joshua. So, brethren, at this time I'll ask you to stand for the closing scripture of the day of this afternoon church service. And I'll go right back to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. But did, not, but did not he not make them one, having remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offsprings. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Thank you, brethren. May God be with you. May God keep you. May God bless you. And hopefully we'll see each other next year.